welcome to Thoughtlines, a podcast exploring the freshest and most unconventional thinking at CRASH, the Centre for Research in the Arts, Social Sciences and Humanities at the University of Cambridge. I'm Catherine Galloway, and in this episode, we work out how to build the world we want to live in. I'm talking to Professor Gina Neff, Executive Director of the Mindaroo Centre for Technology and Democracy here at CRASH and Professor of Technology and Society at the University of Oxford. As a sociologist, her mission is to put people, all of us, back at the heart of technological progress and rethink the way we code innovation. With our daily lives increasingly driven by data and dominated by Zoom meetings, what are the questions we need to ask ourselves and others to power up a future where we connect for real? Well, I'm here this morning at the Bradfield Centre at the Cambridge Science Park, which is a project initially started by Trinity College, Cambridge. And it, it's a great big building that describes itself as a purpose-built, collaborative scale-up space. It's a building designed to, quotes, encourage the collision of ideas and to spark creativity. And I've come here to meet Professor Gina Neff. She's a specialist on work and workplaces, how and where people work, and especially how they work with new technologies and how we all work together. Let's go in and meet her. Through the revolving doors here in this rather high-tech space. Beautiful. Oh, Professor Neff, pleased to meet you. Great to meet you. Welcome to the Bradfield Centre. Thank you very much. Gina, as well as your work at both Cambridge and Oxford, which is pretty whizzy in itself, I know that you also act as an advisor to startups, other universities, not-for-profits, and international organisations such as UNESCO or the OECD, the Organisation for Economic Cooperation and Development. So as we're sitting here watching all this innovation and scaling up going on, what's the one thing you want to say to all these groups that you've learned in your work about work? Well, it's an auspicious day because we've just heard the news about one supposedly genius inventor making a bid for a social media company. And the idea that innovation is the product of one genius man is simply wrong. If I had one thing I wanted everyone to know, it's that innovation, real change, takes the work of a lot of people. And if we can unpack those stories of unsung heroes of innovation, I think we can get a lot smarter about the kinds of futures that we build together. So sorry, Elon Musk, it's not just about you and Twitter. It's about the unsung heroes. Who might the unsung heroes be? How do we spot them? Well, you know... I've looked at a lot of different industries and had a couple of different projects where we try to rescue these ideas of what people are doing in the back offices, in the clerical offices, what people are doing getting the data ready for big data, getting the data ready for AI, and what people are doing trying to make new technologies work in practice. And with those unsung heroes, well, they're people like you and me. They are you and me, and uh, probably everyone else listening to this podcast. They're people figuring out how to make new technologies work in their everyday lives. 
Right. Well, I've never been called an unsung hero before, Gina, so I'm feeling entirely confident now about being able to uh, interview you. Let's go and find somewhere quiet and sit down and unpack some of that. Sounds great. Well, Gina, we're in one of those breakout spaces now where we get to talk more privately with the door shut in case we've got any deals to do or pitches to make. Let's go back to the beginning for a minute. I know that you've worked on the work of lots of different people from bloggers and podcasters, even fashion models, people whose work is producing creative content, which is quite a new form of work all the way up to us ourselves and the wearable tech industry in health and how we do the work of doctors, because sometimes we're tracking our steps and our calories and the hours of sleep that we've done. And you're going to tell me in a moment about the work you've done with the construction industry as well. But I can't help but ask, where has this fascination with work and working and workplaces come from for you? Were you one of those children that played offices Catherine, (laughs) what a great question. Actually, I was. I recently um, had the bittersweet task of clearing out my late mother's home, and I found this document that I had created as a child. It was a last will and testament for a fictional character, and I had created the notary who had authorized the signatures and the signatories. I had given the, the witnesses names and characters. Where did I get this? And I had created perfect legal ease where the first clause, first, comma, was all in caps. I saw this document and thought, I have always been this little office worker, even when I was a child playing in my mother's office. But I think in terms of my professional interest in work, um, for me, it's a way to look at power and power in our everyday lives, because it's one of the social institutions, a sociologist would call it, that we're all a part of. Whether or not we work in paid employment or not, we all do productive activity. And who gets paid what? How do they function in society? How do we look at power relationships in teams and organizations? These questions have fascinated me for my entire academic career. And so if it seems eclectic, the kinds of sites where I study, it's because there's always a theme running through. How do we examine these questions of economic power being worked out in interpersonal ways. And we do talk, especially in places like the Bradfield Centre, where we are today, about the tech haves and have-nots, the people who can navigate this new tech power world so effortlessly. And those of us who, most of us, who are slightly struggling to keep up and wonder where are we being left out of this power relationship and who has the power over us when they own our data and our digital selves. How's it all playing out? This is what I'm so excited to be doing at Cambridge in my role at the Menderoo Center for Technology and Democracy. We take this really big lens on democracy to think about widening participation in everyday tech cultures and holding the tech sector accountable for that power 
enormous power that the that the sector wields in making choices and decisions that affect our everyday lives. And so how can we bring these two things together? How can we expand people's participation in these really vital conversations and discourses about what kinds of futures we want? And how then do we also hold to account those who have power to listen to us and involve us and design for us? And it was the opportunity to do that at Crash that really attracted you to Cambridge, even though you've got quite a big job already at Oxford. Well, yes. I mean, my job at Oxford is really satisfying. I supervise some of the best doctoral students in the world, and that's part of my job that I do there. But the Mindaroo Centre at Crash, that is a chance to make a difference in what we might call the real world. We say policy change for positive change, right? We really are working through various uh, initiatives to help regulate tech through our public speaking series, through the kinds of projects and initiatives that we've been launching here in our first year. Um, We really do see it as a way to, to hold tech to account and to create new narratives, new ways that we think about tech in everyday lives. So one of the small projects that I was really proud of was simply uh, a poster to take to secondary schools showing pictures of people working in the tech sector now and what they studied as undergraduates. And so we have this vision that our digital tech is created by, um, you know, a bunch of guys in spaces like this and working 18 hours a day over computers. And then to see a poster of the people who are working to keep kids safe online, who are working to help make sure that countries around the world and, um, and emerging democracies have access to new technologies that can really help bed in um, democratic values, who are working to make sure that we combat uh, misinformation and and extremism online. Um, You know, when we see people in those jobs, they don't fit that narrative of what we think of of making tech, and yet they're as much involved in the tech futures that we will have as the coders and the programmers, be they male or otherwise. That's the unsung heroes you were talking about. That's the unsung heroes. And that's who I think we need to be celebrating. Right. And I mean, we should start probably our interview by celebrating your latest book, which only came out in March this year, um, published by MIT Press. It's called Human-Centred Data Science, an Introduction. And you're among the founders of this field, you and four other co-authors, Human-Centred Data Science. What is it? And why does it matter? Why do we need to be introduced to it. If we think about all the data that is out there about us and all the companies that use that data, sometimes to deliver delightful things and wonderful things to us, I want to see Netflix recommendations or, or even BBC iPlayer recommendations that, that reflect the things that I might want to see. But if we think about all of that data, we need to be really careful how those data systems are designed with human values. And so what this field is doing is taking the principles of human-centered design, a long-established subfield of computing that would fit within user experience design, or UX. And it's taking those principles and applying it to data science. So rather than simply looking at data science as some statistical whiz-bangery that we see magically appear with, you know, right answers, can we start to think about data science as having sets of values 
and being able to advocate for sets of values? And then can we see data as something not created by an algorithmic model, be it AI or otherwise, but by a set of choices that people make and shaped by how it gets communicated, how it gets worked on, how it gets reproduced or not. And then we can begin to change the work of data science. So we wrote this book in part to target people who were learning data science, be they in an undergraduate course or um, someone in industry who was trying to pick up skills. But we didn't think about the book as a data science textbook. What we wanted to do was to take all the really smart work that other scholars have done on data ethics, on race and bias in big data systems, on gender and bias in big data systems, and bring that work in a way that data scientists could understand. But to do that, you used one of the oldest tricks in the book, which is storytelling. You said we are narrative creatures. And so you didn't do it through code and numbers and data sets and graphs. You really highlight the importance of human relations, literally storytelling, human relationships in approaching this human-centered data science field, which is emerging. Tell me the story of the book itself, though, and what you mean by data-driven storytelling. I was so fortunate to have brilliant co-authors on this project. And so, yes, the, the book is, is in part fueled by storytelling, but it's also fueled by pie. And I don't mean pie as in the Greek letter. I mean pie as in <laughs> the most amazing, delicious pies in the city of Seattle, where the five of us locked ourselves in a room at the end of February 2020. There we were in Seattle where the first COVID cases in the United States were discovered. And we had set ourselves a 12-hour day agenda to draft the entire book in draft form, but to draft it in one week together co-located. And here we are in this space, and slowly the social media feeds are coming in. And then there's one case, and then there's dozens, and the epicenter is in Seattle. And it is like those movies that you see where there's an apocalypse, like we have been isolated the entire week, and we open the door, and it, the world has changed. And so we end up drafting this book almost entirely on Zoom after that first week, you know, having planned that we would get back together. Of course, the world shut down. It only doubled our sense of obligation, that we we really did need to bring these human values back in. So, you know, I was the sole social scientist on the project. I had worked quite extensively with Cecilia Aragon, who has done lots of work in terms of bringing storytelling and narrative to computer scientists. And so it seemed a natural fit to bring these ideas of the stories we tell about people into the book. So there's the, the joke about the streetlight effect, where um, someone loses their keys, but they are looking for their keys on the opposite side of the street. And someone says, well, if you lost your keys on the other side, why are you looking here? It's, well, because the light is better. So we use, <laughs> we use a story like that to say, why are we looking simply where the data are good for answers to things that we want in other places? So you know, between that and eating pie the week before what felt like the world was ending was part of 
the, the, the joy behind writing this book. It's interesting then. So you're looking at human connection at a moment when human connection becomes impossible. And you are, as you say, all on Zoom when the rest of us are trying to catch up with what Zoom actually is. And how do you make it work? And how do you relate to somebody over Zoom all the time? How do you have a party over Zoom? How do you meet relatives over Zoom? We were all grappling with that. And here you were saying, my goodness, we used to need to use this technology to relate again in a different way and to make sure that there's enough humanity in our work on data and on technology. Catherine, it reminds me of the construction work, which I know we're going to get to, but there was a time about a decade ago when this group of construction planners we were following in the innovation book decided that they didn't want to have to fight the commute to come all to the job site to have these planning meetings that they could actually use in a very early version of a technology called WebEx. Most of your listeners will not have ever heard of WebEx, but it lost out in those Zoom wars. And the challenge they had was they missed those little interstitial moments, the chit-chat about the commute, the chit-chat about the state fair and their plans for the weekend, that they so focused on getting through the agenda that they forgot those moments where we all say, oh, that reminds me. Yeah. When we recognize that I know something that you might want to know, or that you just reminded me of something that might, you know, spark a new idea or a conversation. And it was that recognition over a decade ago, when we saw this team struggling with an online platform, that we realized something pretty magical happens in those 7 a.m. meetings on construction sites. They, they aren't simply talking about where the pipe and conduit will go. They are making sense of the building, both in plan form, but also in futuring form. Gina, you've spent over 13 years now looking at the construction industry so literally not just how workplaces work but how buildings get built and your book that you're working on has become I think you described to me on the phone as your third child it's called building innovation tell me about what that is trying to do as a, as a project yeah I started that project on wonderful walks with a new colleague Carrie Sturtz-Dossick the first year I was a professor at my previous institution. And um, we would take these long walks along the Seattle lakeside, along Lake Union. And at one point, she piped up, oh, you study technology. I'm studying technology. And, and this colleague was a civil engineer studying a new technology just then um, being developed called Building Information Modeling or BIM, we were able to be literally on the ground floor of a supposedly disruptive technology for commercial construction. This technology was seen as a way to improve how architects, engineers, and builders, a whole host of different companies, different skills, different trades, different teams, would communicate together. And it was it was imagined in the design of this tool that if you could solve this communication problem, you would eliminate a lot of meetings and you would eliminate a lot of kinds of work. Work would be more productive. Work would be more efficient. Buildings could be better. So BIM was the future. 
that was going to solve everything. BIM was the future. And why would we ever need to have meetings in person again if we just had one beautiful shared database? One engineer told us what he liked about BIM was he could move a wall and then he didn't have to explain it to anybody. Everybody could just see he moved it. And the reality of this was that there was a lot of what my co-author and I call messy talk that happened in the meetings. The genuine innovation that happened in solving some really thorny problems of the building didn't happen because someone brought solution A from the digital model and someone brought solution B. It happened because they all sat and they thought through it. And some kinds of visualizations helped them think in new and different ways. So sometimes the low fidelity visualizations or the rough sketch could be the way to bring more people into the conversation. And so that work of figuring out how to balance the needs for legal and professional documentation and construction documentation, but also the creative and generative notion of making new ideas was really a great amount of work that happened in the project. So BIM can do one thing, which is create those plans and have everybody look at them, but it can't be the place where coincidence happens, where chatting happens, where the water cooler moment happens, where the spontaneity and the waving your arms around bit happens, which is essential to not just the construction industry, but many industries. Do you think the people who build this tech realise that? No. You know, digital technologies are designed and engineered to do a function. And the social engineering, the social functions around what the tech does is is often underdeveloped, underdesigned, and unaccounted for. And that's why social scientists can bring a different lens. Here's what workers in the field are seeing. Here's what they're struggling with. And here's how we might imagine that we could create better meetings using it. So in one case, on the last project we studied, it was a a high-tech engineering laboratory, and we call it Lakeside Labs in the book. And at Lakeside Labs, they decided that face-to-face meetings were costly. Some of the companies that were working on the building were having to drive in 90 minutes to the work site. And what they needed to do was go through this model, which at the time was so big and cumbersome, the laptops of the time could not handle them. So they said, we want to be on our desktops where we can have the model open. Why can't we do this as a conference call? Why can't we do this as a video call? And they had to figure out new ways to make sure that they were articulating and saying out loud the changes that they were making so that it could be documented, noted, you know, that they had to come up with new work practices. And I think that's the step of the story that many people miss about new technologies. We have the first stage of that discovering the future, right? Making the future. And in the book, we call it futuring. All of the work that goes into imagining and putting into action what a piece of technology could be. And then we have the second stage, where people are negotiating new shared practices around the tool, that they're figuring out how they can make it work in their own jobs, 
how it's going to benefit their jobs, and what things in their jobs need to change or shift. And this is a really crucial step, because if we miss out the opportunity of people being able to innovate new technologies in their own work practices, it won't work. It simply won't work. It won't be used. And the history of technology is littered with these stories of great ideas that people don't pick up and adopt in their own daily work practices. And then the final step, the final stage, is changing the rules of the game, going back to those contracts, going back to the the rules, regulations, and laws that govern who can share documents with whom, who's responsible for what, are we allowed to digitally sign uh, digital documents rather than print them out? All of these small things that have to be worked out. But you don't get to those stages unless you've done the work of the first two and they prefigure that third. That's fascinating. And I think in your book, you're looking to formulate a new set of rules, if I understand rightly, a map or if you like, a code of conduct for the successful adoption of new tech in our lives in our workplaces. How is that code looking so far? How close are we to everything working well for us? In many ways, the building sector is so far removed from so much of what many of us do. It's a thousand year old tradition and really governed by these long-standing ways of working. But the lessons that we have there are really showing us how we think about big-scale change, how we think about technological change on an industrial scale. And it, it would be immodest of me to say that I'm trying to rewrite how we think about industrial-scale technological change, but I think the stories we have now, the frameworks we have now about where new ideas come from, where disruption takes us, are simply flattened because they miss out on this rich, rich work that people do and that they're responsible for in their everyday jobs. And so my walking partner, uh, Carrie Sturtz-Dossick, and I were at the beginning of being able to open up um, you know, both our eyes and open up this problem and start to really examine um, from deep insider's perspective what was happening with this tool, what was happening with the stories that were being told about it in the industry, and then to have the time and ability to watch it evolve and see where that story goes. Do you know, as a sociologist and as a person, I have to ask you, are you more drawn to the messy work of creativity or the sort of neat beauty of data and facts and statistics? Or does an academic life like yours necessarily have to have both? I might be the wrong person to ask because I chose as my undergraduate course economics. It was very practical. And I liked the data. And I liked being able to draw answers around boxes. And I liked looking at power. And I thought economics was a way to get there. But I knew as an undergraduate that if I didn't do something that was expansive, that I would miss out on being able to think in new ways. And that's 
when I added the second course of Middle Eastern languages and cultures where I watched Iranian films and studied Middle Eastern geography. And so I am probably the wrong one to ask because I like both. I think both have a place. And I think in our future, we absolutely need both. And so when I hear discourse coming from certain sectors that say, you know, everyone should study STEM, they're not wrong, but they're wrong. They're not wrong in that we desperately need more and more diverse kinds of people taking up STEM careers. But they're wrong in the sense that we can't rely solely on STEM to tell the stories of innovation because there's so much work to be done. I was struck when we spoke on the phone prior to sitting down together today by something you told me about the students at Berkeley in the States. And you said 75% of students at Berkeley take a data science course, regardless of what they're studying as a major. And I really wondered, what do they know at Berkeley that we don't know yet at Cambridge, that we haven't worked out the importance of yet? And that program at Berkeley was set up by a historian of science. Genius. So this stemmed out of um, an initiative called the Moore Sloan Data Science Environment. And it was um, a a combination of campuses, um, Berkeley, the University of Washington in Seattle, where I was a part of the the project, and New York University in, in New York City. And the idea was these two science and, and innovation foundations, Gordon and Betty Moore from Intel fame and Alfred P. Sloan from General Motors fame. So two kind of industrial, different eras coming together from their philanthropy and saying, how are we going to make data science into a discipline in the United States? And each of the campuses incubated different projects. The human-centered data science book that we've just launched came out of the incubation that Cecilia Aragon and I did at the University of Washington. The Berkeley Project said, let's get undergraduates involved. And they made a module called Data 8 that everybody could take. And now the majority do. And what they know is that to be literate In the contemporary world, we have to be literate about data. And so they don't try to train everybody to be a data scientist, but they train everybody to understand how to use and work with data, the limits of data, and to begin to think like a data scientist. And it means that there can be all kinds of wonderful cross-fertilization that happen across these boundaries. At Cambridge, we're lucky to have the Cambridge Digital Humanities Initiative, which is running wonderful summer data schools that the Mindaroo Center is involved in helping to support. So, you know, I think there is work happening you know, on different scales, but the the Cambridge model that we study one discipline and you pick that course at the beginning of three years and you stick with it doesn't open itself up for kind of testing the waters and thinking about new ideas in this, quite the same way. As someone who isn't very confident in the world of data, following on from that idea that the general public do need to know how to use it, Every undergraduate does need to know how to read it as you would read any other text. What do I need to understand about data, Gina, at the most basic level? Tell me something I can take away today. My team has just finished a three-country study of how people used their own self-tracking data during COVID-19 lockdowns. 
I wish I could wrap up the lessons from Betty from the Midlands, who basically looked to her Fitbit on a daily basis to give her encouragement at a time when things were really bleak and grim. I think our data can be used for good and that we can be active and participate in data cultures as they influence our lives. But to get there, we need people to care and we need people to be aware of the systems around. So that's part of the work we've been doing in the center during the Cambridge Festival recently. My colleague, Louise Hickman, led a series of data walks in Cambridge, helping people understand how the city is made up of these data access points, how parts of the city can be data rich and data dark, and bringing kind of our own data to life, whether it's through our digital self-tracking data, our Fitbit data, whether it's through understanding what's being collected about us, or even understanding how our cities are being transformed through data. You know, these are entry points that all of us can take to, to learn more about how data is shaping our everyday lives. Another huge public project that you led uh, this time at Oxford was the A to Z of AI website, which won, I have to say, a Webby Award, which is like an internet Oscar in 2021, for the best educational website. And so I went on to it uh, to have a, a click through and it was just beautiful. I loved it. It was absolutely right for somebody like me entering this space. We had A for artificial intelligence. What is it? Bite-sized explanation. B for bias. C for climate. D for data sets. E for ethics. Right there. I could get the issues that you're talking about in your research. I was also thrilled to see that J was for journalism. And why was for you, you are in charge of your data. You have a say in what is known about you. On the other hand, there are terms that actually in, in public life are quite unfamiliar and quite forbidding, such as M for machine learning, N for neural networks, Q for quantum computing. These are all things that you might hear on the streets in Cambridge, but you might not necessarily hear in many other spaces. So they're unfamiliar to us, but at the same time, you're arguing they're already guiding our lives in a really massive way. So how did this project, the A to Z of AI, come about? I'm so glad you asked. I'm really proud of this little project. It was always designed as public education, and I was very proud to partner with Google. I might not agree with anything Google does, but the idea that they wanted educators involved and people who knew how to explain to people in everyday terms what these concepts were was was really important to me. And the work that we did, you know, we were the team that brought in C is for climate um, because there are ways we talk about AI and the climate, that AI may be a climate fix, but that's not the full story. Or J is for journalism, right? That there's a lot that still needs to be understood about how algorithms are changing, what journalists see to inspire their stories, how we read social media, what themes kind of emerge and, and come up. And journalists who are learning to work with large data sets, like some of the amazing work that, that has been done on, on some of the data releases, where we have AI in newsrooms. So we were really honored to be a part of that team and to lead the science 
communication part of that project. And my doctoral thesis and my first book were about the first wave of internet companies in New York. And of course, the Webbies were in that early web stage. You know, that was the biggest honor you sought out. And so for me, it really does feel like full circle to come back at this stage of my career and win a Webby. But the really big honor, my quite jaded 13-year-old son <laughs> asked not only that he could borrow one of the printout copies of the A to Z of AI, but if he could lend it to a friend of his at school. Oh, wow. I made it. I'm sorry that 13-year-olds <laughs> are wanting to read the A to Z of AI. That's my big honor. A notoriously tough crowd, 13-year-old boys. The hardest one, actually. And you cracked it? Uh, evidently. Well, recently, when I was thinking about meeting you, I came across this cartoon here that I'm going to share with you. And what we see here is a, a rather alarmed couple arriving in hell and being greeted by a devil with a prong. And he's showing them around hell and he's pointing to a whole area of people staring grimly into laptops. And the devil is saying, and over here, you'll be sorting every single digital photo you've ever taken. And I thought, yeah, that's kind of how I feel about data. I mean, as I speak to you today, I have literally just run out of iCloud storage and am being sent various alarming messages to say that I need to pay and get more. Otherwise, this is all going to be lost. As an everyday person, I feel like we've got too much data going on, more than we can possibly handle now or make use of. Would you ever say we're sort of in a data hell of our own making? Mm. And how do you get out of it? Well, at first, I would, as an academic, I would say, who's this we? Um, <laughs> if it's us as individuals, I'm as guilty as, as anyone because my pandemic project, you know, some people took up and kept alive sourdough starters. Some people took up wild swimming. I took up a flower photo posted on social media every single day. That's been my pandemic project. Wow. It's still going. It's completely transformed how I think of social media, but it has eaten up every bit of free storage because, you know, to get that beautiful shot of a lilac coming into bloom, right, you're going to need 20 of them. And so my personal hell is going through and deleting all the pictures <laughs> that I haven't used. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of flower pictures on my phone. But, you know, if we think we as a society... You're hitting on one of the key issues that we're tackling at the Mindaroo Center for Technology and Democracy. So my colleague Hunter Vaughn has been doing a project on the infrastructure that carries the internet. This is what surprises my 13-year-old boys. It might surprise some of your listeners. You know, when we think of the internet, we think of the cloud. We think of things in the air and weightless and immaterial and digital and stored somewhere. Maybe we think of servers but we don't think of the massive undersea cable networks that are literally linking our globe. We certainly don't think of companies like Google who have just gotten approval to launch yet a new undersea cable network serving between the west coast of Canada and Japan that they're going to lay on their own. So this is infrastructure that we used to think the, the, the provenance of um, governments, of intergovernmental cooperation. And yet, the world's internet backbone physically is literally being laid by companies like Amazon, 
Facebook, and Google. We're back to power. We are literally back to power. And we're literally back to electricity power. So these companies are talking quite a bit about how green their electricity is, but they're only green in certain markets. And so when Google makes a proclamation, like we are aiming to be 100% green renewable energy, what they're saying is they're buying up the green grid of countries like the Netherlands and Iceland. And they're they're doing this in a way often without democratic participation, without governmental oversight, without the public really being fully aware. And this is the work of my colleague, Yulia Rone, who works with us at the Mendeleev Center, of thinking about what she terms digital sovereignty. How are countries now standing up and saying, do we have rights over the data in the data centers that are, that are being run off the green grid in our country? So there's enormous power issues at play, both in terms of power of electricity, but also power in terms of who's building the infrastructure, who's going to control the infrastructure. And all of that is so you and I can have instantaneous, wonderful convenience of having those pictures on our phone. If we're talking about power, moving on from data slightly, three out of five of your authors on human-centered data science are female. If I look at your paper on the construction industry, which is subtitled The Messy Work of Making Technology Useful for Architecture, Engineering and Construction, all of you, all three of you are women. In March this year, you wrote a blog titled AI Must Not Make Women's Lives Worse. So if we talk about gender power for a minute in this space, could you expand on that a little bit for me? Well, I think the narratives about women's roles in tech um, have just been steamrolled over the idea of the lone genius, the, the singular lone genius who is almost always coded as male, um, often coded as white, who, you know, through individual singular power makes his will on the world. And the idea that there's other ways of making, of caring, of curating, of supporting, of tending, of creating futures is, is lost. And if we just credit the ideas of the loudest and the boldest and those with the sharpest elbows, we're missing out truly on a whole host of ways that we could be thinking about who innovates and why and how. And I think it's incredibly important as we think about what kind of future we want. You know, Catherine, it reminds me too that there's one thing we know about how we get women and girls interested in STEM fields. And that is we teach them that it's a way to make the world. We don't teach them that they need to to do computer science because, you know, they'll be able to be the boss or, or they'll do computer science and they'll make a lot of money. Sure, for some women and girls, that's motivation. But the idea that you can be a part of making the future and you can be a part of making the future better for people, that motivates women and girls. And so part of what I've seen my role as an educator is to really make sure that I cultivate that spirit. And I'm really, really proud of my students. Who did that for you as a young girl who was playing offices in Kentucky? 
Oh, golly. I was really inspired by my mom. So my mom, uh, who died of COVID earlier this year, a phenomenal woman, um, delivered uh, up a dirt road in a hollow in Kentucky in a house with no running water by a midwife who traveled there on horseback and died successful, rich in her life, and and powerful in her way and in her community, a leader in her community. And, you know, to see her in the 1970s and 1980s take on jobs that were traditionally dominated by men. She worked in politics. She dominated her races. But to see her do that with such a kind of curiosity about the world and a deep care for others was truly inspiring. And I have to say that it may be cliched to say we're inspired by our parents, but I was really inspired by my mom. That's a lovely thing to say, especially sitting here now today, having recently lost her. To wrap this talk, which has been so far reaching and so fascinating, I'm going to go back to your introduction of the book that you've just brought out, The Human-Centered Data Science, and all five of you co-authors writing in that introduction say of this book, we have high hopes that this book can become a practical manual for data science practitioners who want to change the world. We do not say this lightly. That was very much more of an emotional mission than I was expecting from a book on data science. And you go on to say, we want to build technologies that create a world we want to live in. What kind of worlds, Gina Neff, would you like to live in by the end of your career? I want to live in a world where we can proudly stand up for society, that there is a social left. And I don't think that that's going to happen without work. We live in a dangerous time where our public square is under attack. Our sense of facts and information and science is under attack. Our sense of publicness is under attack. Our sense of sociality is under attack. Social isolation is on the rise. And I'm not a Luddite. I don't think this is the responsibility of technology. I think it's our responsibility. I think we can make better choices. And so if there's one lesson that I can bring to this as a sociologist who cares very deeply about society and really wants to be the cheerleader for society, I think it's that we can make choices that bring us together and hold us up rather than choices that simply tear us apart or let us continue to see ourselves as, you know, distinct and, and isolated and lonely individuals. And those are choices that we know how to do in the social sciences and humanities. That's not the purview of just engineers. And that's why we need to be bringing these kinds of messy senses of how we bring the human values into these engineering conversations, how we bring an analysis of power into technology design decisions. That's why this work is so important. Gina Neff, I hope absolutely everybody in the Bradfield Centre and beyond hears that message today. Thank you so very much for talking to us on Thoughtlines. Thank you, Catherine. 
Thoughtlines is presented by me, Catherine Galloway, and produced by Carl Homer for Cambridge TV on behalf of CRASH, the Centre for Research in the Arts, Social Sciences and Humanities at the University of Cambridge. Join us again next time for more academic thinking outside the box. Thank you.